The name of tonight's talk is Resolve of the Heart. I want to talk about resolve, or it's a, as it's often called, determination. Speaking about its role and function in the unfolding of our hearts and minds. This too was inspired by one of my recent retreats. It was the uh, two months, March, April, when I was sitting. And often at the end of a retreat, there'll be some theme that kept emerging, and I'll name my retreat after that. And so that one was called Resolve of the Heart. <coughs> and when we think of the word resolve, you know, it can bring to mind that unshakable strength of mind that some of us experienced with Sayadaw Upandita, you know, where there was just that fierce determination unshakability. Um, and so, you know, we might think of resolve, seeing that in our practice, in the times when, you know, it's really effortless and we're just going for it and we have that sense of fierce determination. But the way I experienced it was quite different. I went through an enormous amount of sleepiness and it really didn't disappear, as we often say at the beginning of a retreat after the first few days. You know, it didn't let up. It was like day after day of bobbing and weaving and um, just endless sleepiness. In fact, it lasted almost six weeks. But what I started to see out of it was that there was a resolve present. You know, and that resolve kept me on the cushion. And it kept me there at times when, you know, it was quite surprising to me. You know, oftentimes, uh, you know, it gets around 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock, and sleepiness starts to set in. And we, many times in my own practice, when I start to get sleepy at that time of night, okay, it's time for bed, it's enough. But the resolve was strong in some way. And I had so many experiences where the sleepiness would be there, would be really strong, and then suddenly it would be gone. So I wasn't feeling daunted by the fact that sleepiness arose. It just was what I had to work with. So many times in the evening, you know, I would sit through that sleepiness that comes around 10 o'clock. And then after that, I would often find it was the clearest sitting of the day. But it took a lot on another level to keep looking at this sleepiness, to keep working with it. You know, and sometimes employing skillful means that we do with sleepiness, um, walking more, walking outside, standing up, moving around. Um, noting more. I mean, you know, there's just many skillful means to use with sleepiness. Sometimes it was just really to be with that hazy, cloudy mind. And then sometimes it was just this sense of staring it down. Okay, here you are again, and I'm just going to work with you. I'm not afraid of you. I'm just going to be with you. This is my experience in the moment, and I'm not going to run. I'm not going to turn away. And, you know, out of that, I started to get this sense of resolve to just keep going no matter what. And I could see it too on the level where, you know, I was working with this real tangible sleepiness, but it also felt like in the larger, broader sense, working with the sleepiness of delusion, ignorance, and that desire to awaken. And it, you know, it was really taking the form of uh, real dullness, heaviness, and then 
you know, moments of clarity, stillness. It was a time when I could have judged myself to be a bad meditator, to not be very good, or to have been really frustrated with my experience. But by holding this resolve in my heart, instead I started getting in touch with compassion, tenderness, just this willingness and patience. It didn't matter. This is just what was happening. So looking at resolve and what it is, It is what allows us to stand steady in calling forth the energy or effort that is needed to realize our deepest aspirations of heart and mind. (coughs) And in our lives, it's like we get a scent of freedom, whether it's through an experience that we had. Sometimes as a small child, we may have in some way touched into some purity of mind and it stuck with us through all these years and it's like a scent and you know in some ways like a homing instinct we 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 start to get um, a sense of possibility from this and then maybe it's hearing the teachings and this resonates with our own experience there's something that sounds true in it Sometimes this scent of freedom comes about when we've been in immense suffering. And just intuitively, we know of another possibility, another way of life. And out of this, we find the aspiration to awaken, arising. It can, you know, many times it's only a faint whisper or a sense that we can't even put into words. And even if we do find words for it, it's quite likely that each of us would express it in a different way. You know, some of us maybe under have some um, sense of arahant, <coughs> what an arahant is, what the Buddha is talking about when he uses arahant, a fully liberated, enlightened being. Maybe we resonate with the word enlightenment or awakening. Or maybe we just feel like, I just want peace. I just want calmness. I heard one person recently say, I just don't want to hurt anybody. I'm sick of hurting people. So, you know, however, we have this sense of possibility. It doesn't seem to matter what words we give to it, because in order to be truly happy, we do have to really see things as they are. With this aspiration, there comes a deep resolve or determination to call this forth in our lives or seek to embody this aspiration. A determination to know this for ourselves, to really live to the full capacity of being a human being. Just to clarify a little bit around the word aspiration, because you know it often um, is a tricky one for us. In our lives, we have many goals, aspirations, and uh, it can become confusing when we start speaking of dhamma aspirations. 
for some of us, even you know, the, using the word goal seems antithetical to being present, learning to be here now. You know, and and turning that into a goal seems like wrong. Um, so we do have to be careful how we hold aspirations, goals, and just to speak for a little moment about this, uh, just to hopefully help to clarify it. You know, in our culture, we're very goal-orientated. You know, from the time that we're small children, what are you going to do when you grow up? You know, what what's the what's your goal in life? And you know, reflecting back to when I was a child, when I was asked that question, it had nothing to do with what I would embody as a human being. It was all laid up around becoming something. You know, and most often it pointed towards career, what you would do with your life. And so, you know, often when uh, we take goal in that way, there's a fixation of mind, a rigidity of mind that is not just a steadfastness. It's really uh, a, a, a narrowing of the mind on something in the future and then we just you know, go to enormous pain, suffering at times to fulfill that goal. Oftentimes it's very painful because that goal may have been based upon an intellectual idea. You know, it could come out of the values of our culture, what we think is good to become in this culture. And it may not have really resonated with our gifts in life, what our intuitive sense of possibility is. It's coming from a head level, an intellectual, a thinking about. Or, you know, for many of us, it may have even been imposed upon us by parents, peers, other people. And so we start to think that's just what we should do. And you know, in the trying to attain that goal, often we will become separated, alienated. We aren't alive moment to moment in its unfolding. And in a really simple way, it rep- re- relates to um, even if we have a goal, you know, the, the, at lunchtime, you get up and you're walking to the dining hall to have lunch. And if you're really hungry and you're fixated on the goal, you're probably not walking step by step. You know, you're, and you're disconnecting. You're not present to the unfolding in the moment. But instead, simply put, aspiration or goal can be to simply embody this sense of possibility. You know, and the sense of possibility could be that, you know, we maybe came in contact when we were young with someone who was really loving, who was very compassionate, and we recognized the force of goodness in this person. And so the aspiration comes to embody that in ourselves. But we don't reach that aspiration by holding out for something in the future. We work with it in the present moment to see that which obstructs the loving-kindness, the compassion. We learn to hold the aspiration to awaken in a way that keeps directing us back and inclusive of whatever's happening in our lives.
our aspirations help us to question or inquire rather than to sit back in complacency. Our aspirations can help us to move out of a self-referencing framework. A Zen master who gave me my name, Miyoshin, his name's Hogan Daido Yamahata. I can't remember if I've spoken about him yet. But anyways, he is just a wonderful, delightful being. Um, he, to me, is the essence of the teachings, and he carries no baggage. Uh, and his personality is an impish brat. <laughs> He's been, you know, although I didn't spend a lot of time practicing, he was one of these beings that just dropped into my life, affected me so profoundly that I had no hesitation when he gave me my name and suggested that I use it, of using it. You know, and, and it somehow keeps alive that connection for me, even though it's been several years now since I've seen him. He just had a profound effect on me. And one of the ways that I felt the effect very strongly was he often talked about what he called uncovering our deepest vows. And there was something about this process of uncovering. Because, you know, we hear aspiration and we can think, we need to know what our aspiration is. And, oh my God, I don't really know, you know. It's just a faint whisper. I don't know, you know. And yet, he talked about uncovering it, uncovering it through our practice, uncovering it through that resolve of heart and mind, and it being a continual process. It's a journey of realigning our lives to live and reflect this deepest vow. When I was preparing this talk, I pulled out one of his books, and you know, I really hadn't read his words for a while. Um, I just started reading, and the tears just started flowing. Just the, you know, somebody who expresses in a way that really resonates for me. So I'd just like to share a few of his words. He says, the most important vow for all of us is to deepen our real awareness and thereby awaken the primary direction of life. This is our true growth and sublimation. No one can be made exempt from this common principle. It is necessary for all religions, countries, and cultures. Unless we come back to this basic starting point, the world will continue to writhe in agony. On the one hand, we are like wild beasts, struggling with victory, defeat, illness, desire, darkness. And on the other, we are like hamsters, sleeping comfortably, in our old habits of mannerisms. Our ignorance wrapped in the blindness of conventionalism prevents us from recognizing our primary direction within a basic common principle. The same ignorance is leading us to become a handful of soil in the graveyard, still not emancipated from self. So we need to observe ourselves as we really are. We need to see the wholeness clearly. So the most important vow to deepen our real awareness and to awaken the primary direction of life. 
know, something that, you know, just not us as meditators, but as a basic principle of life. If we can all do this, it would be a very different world. Our practice all the time is stripping away the clouds and confusion of the mind, opening the doorway to discover that which is of real value and benefit. And this stripping away happens through simply being present, aware, alert to this mind-body process and seeing things as they really are. Hoganson also goes on to say, the silent voice of emptiness arises from the abyss of painful despair. When we become desperately ashamed of our existences and feel miserable at having lost all that is firm within us, when we are at a loss to know what to do next, then our whole being is made void. In the silent appreciation of our own pain, we shed humble, penitent tears, tears shed from the bottomless earth within us. But if we merely keep a vow of mind as a conviction, then it is far removed from original emptiness. The real vow is nothing of ourselves. It comes from the fire of the Buddha. We may be glowing with energy from learning the higher way of our ambitious ideals, but that energy is only the fire of delusional passions. Both the highest vow and the lowest dream are delusions as long as we stay in our own realm. Our deepest vow, awakened in emptiness, is not brought into being by the intellect, but by the daily life of practice. Practice is not a means to an end, but it is the end in itself, the ultimate fulfillment of our own lives, the open way of practice. Our deepest vow is a huge koan, and he describes a koan as the ultimate question which in itself is an answer by which one can cut off one's own karmic ego head and be born anew. So our deepest vow is a huge koan for us to keep in the center of our being. It is not something for the conscious mind. We hold this vow deep in our hearts. And then it's resolve that will help us to see it into fruition. It helps us to stay steady and committed to our path. The journey that we'll embark on is unknown territory. There's no way to know what will happen in the unfolding of our hearts and minds. We all have unique karmic lumps. Know that we will unfold in many, many different ways. And we don't know what we will need to face, where we have held tension, what will arise in our minds. At times, it may be really scary, quite fearful, and other times quite joyous. But it's the resolve that will keep us from turning back, from thinking only of distraction. And it's also resolve that will keep us from indulging in the joy, but help us to stay steady even when it's going well.
Resolve is actually one of the ten paramis, or requisites for enlightenment. These are ten qualities of heart and mind that need to be developed to some capacity to free the heart. A bodhisattva, or someone who is, has the aspiration to become a Buddha, a fully awakened being for the benefit of all beings, um, will spend countless lifetimes working with these paramis. And that they're not limited to someone who has this aspiration to be the fully awakened omniscient Buddha, but are universal in that they needed to be cultivated to some extent by anyone who seeks to free the mind. The other paramis are generosity, morality, renunciation, wisdom, energy, patience, truthfulness, loving-kindness, and equanimity. Resolve is the paramis, or as paramis is often translated, the perfection, the, the developing the paramis, working with perfecting these requisites of mind. It's the paramis that um, enables us to carry through the development or cultivation of all of the other paramis. We have that resolve, that determination to really work with the perfecting or calling forth of these qualities of heart and mind. It's a resolve that carries us through really turbulent waters and helps us to stand steady in the face of you know, this mind that is so often wild, chaotic, that feels so untamed, and we often feel at the mercy of. It's resolve that helps us to remember why we're doing what we're doing here, what our purpose is in being here, staying committed to this purpose. I want to take a look at a, a short um, excerpt from a sutta where the Buddha was talking about resolve. But just first to speak a little bit about determination, because I find myself using that word, and I know too that you know I, I used fierce determination when I first started speaking, and that often that leads us into something Joseph spoke about. Uh, about a while ago when he was talking about right effort and that sometimes we'll come up with a, a willful determination or striving and you know that tends to be again a hardness in the mind of fixation that um, that can lead us astray in really touching into what resolve is uh, I feel quite well acquainted with this willful determination in my own life you know the other night I spoke about how I had chronic fatigue. And you know, one of the primary reasons I got chronic fatigue was because of having very strong willful determination. And with that willful determination, you will often push through things, but not done with kindness, not done with care, compassion, tenderness. And as a result, you know, I found in myself that the body couldn't handle it. You know, it started to fall apart. 
it, it was pushing it too hard. It really wasn't opening to the totality of experience. <coughs> Often we'll find that the striving has a lot of ambition, achievement, that it can be very self-referencing. Or it might be stemming from a place of wanting to please others, wanting acknowledgement, uh, wanting acceptance from others. So I think in speaking about resolve or determination, it can be helpful to hold it more in a way that points towards a gentle but firm heart. I prefer to call it a full-heartedness. You know, it's really a gathering together of that heartfelt passion, the energy of inspiration, and just applying that as best we can. So the sutta that the quote I'm going to be reading comes from the Datuvabhanga Sutta. And I'd just like to give a little bit of background, because for me, I know in reading the suttas, uh, they come alive when I have a picture of the setting uh, in which these words were spoken. And when I really acknowledge that, oh, it was two people speaking, you know, people just like you and me, having, speaking Dharma, talking Dharma together. And it brings it alive. So, you know, I just want to give a little bit of uh, background. It's quite a famous sutta. Um, probably many of you have heard it in some form. It's the one where the Buddha was seeking out lodging for a night, and he went to uh, a potter who had a shed and was asking if he could stay in the shed for the, for the night. On his arrival, he was, a told, he was told that there was another monk already staying there, but the potter said if the other monk was in agreement, it would be fine for the Buddha to spend the night there. The other monk was called Venerable Pukasati. He had gone forth into the homeless life and lived by the teachings of the Buddha, only he had never met the Buddha. He had been inspired to uh, renounce his worldly existence, where he had actually been a king. One day when he received a gift from King Bimbisara, whom probably some of you are familiar with, uh, King Bimbisara had sent him a golden plate upon which there had been inscribed descriptions of the three jewels, Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha, and various aspects of the Dhamma. When uh, Venerable Pukasati received this, he was so inspired, he just renounced his life. And he was on a journey to find the Buddha, to get teachings from the Buddha. And so here the Buddha arrives in his shed. But Venerable Pukasati didn't realize this. He saw him as a normal monk. And, you know, the Buddha asked if it would be okay for him to stay for the evening, and then, then he was fine. He said, yes, there's plenty of room. And they both sat down and spent most of the night meditating. As the Buddha was sitting there observing this other monk, he described him to be one who conducts himself in a way that inspires confidence. And th then the Buddha started to question him. 
And in, you know, in the questioning, he asked him who his teacher was and would he know his teacher if he saw him. And, you know, he, he responded honestly, no, he wouldn't. And then the Buddha, you know, really seeing that this person had gone forth without ever having met him, but had that, you know, conviction in his heart and um, was so touched by the teachings that he, he'd made this enormous step. The Buddha proceeded to give him some teachings. It's, um, in the sutta, he expands upon the elements. And in expanding upon the elements, he talks a lot about resolve, determination, or as it's sometimes translated in the, this sutta as being foundations. And I'll come back to all these different translations in a moment. Um, I'm going to go actually just to the end of the story before even saying anything of the sutta, uh, because once I get going on that, I'll probably lose the plot and you'll never know what happened. (laughs) Uh, So the Buddha expounded on this sutta, and Venerable Pukasati listened. As he listened, he practiced, something I think we sometimes forget to do when we listen. We might listen and drift here and whatever, but he really practiced. He took it to heart. And at the end of it, Venerable Pukasati uh, did realize who was speaking to him and apologized. And of course, the Buddha accepted his apology. <laughs> and then Venerable Pukasati wanted to get full ordination from the Buddha. And the Buddha said first he needed to go and get robes and a bowl. And so he left to do that. When he went out to do that, there was a stray cow that actually killed him. The good news is <laughs> that it said that his listening had been so attentive and his practice so deep that he had actually realized the third stage of enlightenment. And he would um, be reborn, he would never be reborn on this earth and yet would realize full nibbana. So one piece of this sutta that really directly relates to resolve, determination. The Buddha says, a person has four determinations. These are the four determinations. The determination for discernment or wisdom. The determination for truth. The determination for relinquishment. The determination for calmness or peace. I'm going to repeat it again, only I'm going to um, kind of substitute words. because I'll tell you why I do this. The, the Pali word for resolve is aditana. And what I've discovered in working with Pali words is, you know, you can read it in one way, and it's like it's black and white. And you just take it, okay, that's what it means. But in working with Pali scholars, you actually start, they'll they'll have many different words that can relate to that one Pali word. And when I hear it in um, different translations in that way, it starts to open it up for me. And so, you know, it could be that we have some glitch in the mind with determination, so it's like, we erase the whole thing. So maybe it will work with resolve, or maybe it will work as a foundation. A person has four resolves. These are the four resolves. The resolve for discernment, wisdom, 
the resolve for truth, the resolve for relinquishment, the resolve for calm and peace. In Bhikkhu Bodhi's translation of the Majjhima he uses the word foundation. And when we use the word foundation here, it gives that sense of really being an anchor point to what we can turn to. You know, we can have a foundation of discernment, a foundation of truth, a foundation of relinquishment, a foundation of calm or peace. So just taking a look at each of these resolves. The resolve for discernment. Wise discernment is another name for wisdom. This is a mind that is able to discern right view from wrong view, or that is able to discern that which leads to further suffering and that which leads to the end of suffering. And the practice of vipassana is a practice of cultivating wise discernment. You know, it's wis- um, it's a- a- vipassana insight is often called a wisdom practice. And the word vipassana itself denotes an intuitive flash that reveals the three universal characteristics. I think we've spoken about these, anicca, impermanence, dukkha, suffering, anicca, the impersonal or insubstantial nature of experience. And seeing into these three characteristics helps us to change the direction of our lives from wanting or needing things to be a certain way in order to be happy to finding the peace and happiness that is naturally present in the non-grasping mind. One of the first lessons we get in meditation practice is um, a lesson that takes us from recognizing the difference between what our concepts about experience are and what is the direct experience itself. We see this when we recognize the difference between having a visual image of pain in the knee and experiencing that pain in the knee directly, heat, stabbing, searing, fire, whatever qualities are present. When we tune into this experience directly and immediately, it's a changing flow of sensations, a changing flow of um, experience. As we pay attention, we begin to see that what arises is subject to many different conditions that are happening, such as sitting in here and the hall starts heating up, sweat starts to come. You know, that we don't have control over that. But that's a part of the fire that we might experience. It's a part of uh, this changing flow of experience. And we begin to see how all of these changing conditions are very interconnected. This practice has the potential to cut through 
the delusion of how we often mistakenly view life through this conceptual mind, through just stopping at a superficial level, and takes us into the deeper, direct, immediate experience. Of course, we work with uh, cultivating this discernment through mindfulness, through being present to our experience moment by moment. We work with... (coughs) Excuse me. with a (coughs) continuity of mindfulness. And as we work with continuity, the mindfulness becomes more penetrating. We see deeper. (coughs) We're no longer caught on the superficial level. It dispels the darkness. We work with cultivating wise discernment through um, cultivating samadhi bhavana, as is one of the three trainings that I spoke about in the Noble Eightfold Path. It's where we work with wise effort, wise mindfulness, and wise concentration. Really cultivating the mind so that we can be present, so that we can see clearly, so that we can see what leads to more suffering, and what leads to the alleviation of suffering. Out of this, insight arises. We see clearly into experience, and our false views of life simply fall away. I'm sure we're all already working with this resolve for wise discernment in sitting here. We come to a retreat, and the retreat almost never unfolds the way we want it to. We get challenged to accept many different things, internally and externally. Even though we are sitting in beautiful conditions, there's still no things that can be hard to accept. As we're sitting, we can find ourselves faced with habits of laziness. might become unbearable at times. But we stand steady in our, our resolve to see things clearly, to know this experience, to see deeply into what's happening for us. We might find that there's a lot of weariness. We get tired of moment after moment being with this changing experience. Or we might come to retreat and we find memories surfacing from our past that maybe we thought we worked with and they were done, and yet they're, they're poking their head up, asking to be seen again, asking or, or, or being seen in a totally new light. All of this can be really difficult to work with. And this is where our resolve, remembering that we've come here to be able to see clearly is what will keep us going, will help to give us that effort or energy needed.
we find a strengthening of this resolve when we touch into what our place is in practice, what our job is in coming here. Now, we can't control the way it's going to unfold, but we can stay steady in our efforts to come back, to turn up over and over again, no matter what arises, and simply look into this experience to see it just as it is. Because this is where wisdom will arise, wise discernment. At the beginning of a sitting, we might find it helpful to remind ourselves of this. May I sit with whatever arises, with whatever unfolds in this period of practice. May I stand steady with it. Through this resolve, we really seek to come to know for ourselves. Nobody can do this work for us. We have to do it ourselves. So staying steady in this resolve for wisdom. The second determination, a determination for truth. This is one that the word truth resonates with me. Because when I came to the practice, it wasn't to become a Buddhist, to become anything. And what I felt myself seeking was truth, something that I felt I had been seeking since the time of being a child. And it was you know, this, this desire to know that which is true, just to know the truth. <clears throat> a determination for truth can help us to be uncompromising in the facing of whatever comes. It's just what's arising. Just see it, accept it, know it. Don't take it personally. Just come to know it as the truth of this moment. Resolve for truth helps us to develop morality, right speech, speech that brings about a greater harmony and peace rather than fragmentation and ill will. We can develop an unshakable commitment to one's words, to speaking the truth. This really helps us in our practice because then we're not tormented by things that we have said in the past. We're not tormented by how we've caused harm. And instead we can sit with the great joy of the virtuous mind. It's said that, well, the Buddha, before he was a Buddha, when he was a bodhisattva, and he was working with these ten paramis or requisites for enlightenment, that um, the determination for truthfulness or the, uh, the paramis of truthfulness was the one he never broke. He never uttered an untrue word. To me, this is deeply inspiring. Now, to bring that kind of resolve to each word that we sp- speak. It really helps to bring about a deep alignment of body, speech, and mind. 
what is false has a deceptive nature. And just noticing when you speak something that is false, how do you feel as you say it? It's hard to feel, you know, say it with that sense of conviction and strength. And yet when we speak the truth, what's the mind like then? You know, even I know when I've done things that have not been skillful and spoken to somebody what I've done, just to speak the truth is so freeing. So a resolve for truth, both truth in being honest with experience and being truthful in how we live our lives, what we express in our lives. The third determination, resolve, is that for relinquishment or the letting go of all attachments. Last week I shared a quote from Ajahn Buddhadasa, Thai forest monk, whose teachings I also resonate with, where he talked about throwing back that which has been stolen. Another way he puts it is, we are giving back to nature the things that we have falsely appropriated from it. This mind, these feelings, this body, the breath itself. They do not really belong to us. When we see that, instead of feeling deprived of something we thought was ours, we feel a great freedom, the liberation that the Buddha promised. Giving back to nature the things we have falsely appropriated from it. The relinquishment or letting go of I, me, and mine, which is the great burden of self. The burden of self that comes through this attachment, craving, clinging. The relinquishment happens very naturally when we see how much suffering we cause ourselves through this attachment, desire. The letting go is not possible through willful determination, but only through wise discernment, seeing things just as they are. And then we let go over and over again. We give back moment by moment. So the third determination, resolve for relinquishment, letting go, giving back, throwing back. The last of the resolves, the resolve for calm or peace. With this resolve, there's two levels of which I spoke of last week. There's the level of cultivating calm in the mind through samadhi, a concentration. Letting this be the foundation on which insight unfolds. There's also the level of wisdom where we can train the mind as in supreme calm or peace, which is the pacification of greed hatred, and delusion, where we see clearly into greed, hatred, and delusion, and we let go.
This resolve helps to support the other three resolves. The Buddha summarized these four determinations in this way. One should not be negligent of discernment or wisdom. One should guard the truth, be devoted to relinquishment, and train only for calm or peace. One should not be negligent of discernment or wisdom, should guard the truth, be devoted to relinquishment, and train only for calm or peace. He also said, the tides of conceiving, conceiving being through craving, conceit, views, the tides of conceiving do not sweep over one who stands upon these foundations or determinations. The tides of conceiving no longer sweep over one. They are ca- when, when they no longer sweep over one, they are called a sage at peace. So this resolve, determination, it helps us to keep persevering. It helps us to keep looking into the cause of suffering. It helps us to stay committed to wise discernment. It helps us to be patient, kind with ourselves when it's difficult helps us to develop equanimity, turning up for experience, no matter what it is. Resolve and equanimity seem tied together in this way, because equanimity can hold all experience. And sometimes it's difficult, but through this resolve, we will come to equanimity. I'd like to close with a poem, and I hope it's not an insult to poets, because it's something I wrote, (laughs) at the end of that retreat that I called Resolve of the Heart. And it's not that I spend my retreat sitting writing poetry, (laughs) just at the end it was a reflection that happened. So maybe it's of some help to you. Resolve of the Heart. Seeing the face of fear, I quiver and I quake. I become so small two step backwards, and still I walk on. The torment of the judging mind, you or me, is the thought that divides. There is so much disdain, and still I walk on. Laziness prevails. It clouds my vision. Sometimes I think that my bed is nibbana, and still I walk on. The unending sleepiness that defies impermanence, the bashing from its waves, foggy, heavy, oppressive, and still I walk on. Guilt, self-hatred, they are friends that gang up, that lacerate and pierce, and I'm left in the muck, and still I walk on. Walk on, walk on. It's that whisper in my ear. It's that longing in my heart. It's that shiver of unspeakable peace, and so, I walk on.
So let's just sit for a moment. May any goodness that arises from our practice, our efforts here, may this energy be dedicated to the welfare, liberation, peace of all beings everywhere. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.